Well, good morning. We've been looking at uh, before and after stories, looking at stories in the scripture where, where, um, where an individual has an encounter with God, or an experience with God, and, and we see the change before and after stories. And today we come to the story of, of Job. And Job is a story that, that most of us are pretty familiar with. You know, the story of a, of a man who is kind of a pillar of society, uh, very successful, wealthy, uh, loving family, ten children, uh, well-regarded, a godly man. And then something bad happens. And in a moment, everything changes and suffering hits. And it's unexplainable. And it's confusing. And there's chaos. And then in verse 6, we, we want to take a look at this passage. In verse 6, there's a radical shift in the scenery. The, the passages that Sonia read are kind of book bookends to, the, to kind of an inside look. So take a look at you, if you would, with me at verse 6 in Job chapter 1. And uh, it can be helpful for us to, to picture the story of Job as, as like a play. Okay? And there's an upper stage and there's a lower stage. And the upper stage is heaven, where God and the angels are, where the interaction happens. And then down below is the lower stage, Job and his friends. So with that in mind, let's take a look at Job 1, verse 6. One day the angels came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them. The Lord said to Satan, where have you come from? Satan answered the Lord, from roaming through the earth and going back and forth in it. Then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. Does Job fear God for nothing? Satan replied. Have you not put a hedge around him and his household and everything he has? You have blessed the work of his hands so that his flocks and herds are spread throughout the land. But stretch out your hand and strike everything he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. The Lord said to Satan, very well then, everything he has is in your hands. But on the man himself, do not lay a finger. Then Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Now, we, we need to say that although we as readers, we have a glimpse of both the upper stage and the lower stage, Job does not. His view only entails the lower stage. He has no idea what's going on on the upper stage in heaven. And so Satan leaves uh, and he goes and, and he attacks Job and Job loses his livestock, his wealth, his servants, all ten of his children. And then we wait to see how he responds along with God and Satan. And we're told that Job grieves, he worships, and he speaks words of blessing and praise to God. And it says, in all of this he did not sin. Now the story switches back up to the upper stage. And again, Satan comes before God and claims he can gain power over Job. If only Job were to be physically tortured. And in chapter 2, we read this. A man will give all he has for his own life, but now stretch out your hand and strike his flesh and bones, and he will surely curse you to your face. Again, God gives Satan consent, and so long, with this qualifier, so long as Satan does not kill Job, and from this point on in the story, the, the action shifts back down to the lower stage. And the key question, really, um, in this book, many often think it's questions like, where is God when we suffer? Or why do good things happen to bad people and bad things happen to good people? Uh, if God is good, why is there suffering and pain in the world? We, those are good questions, important questions. 
And we've looked at those some in the past. But, but really, the, the fundamental question presented in the book of Job is really centered in the upper stage. And it comes when Satan asks of God, does Job fear God for nothing? In other words, does, does, does Job love and worship God for nothing? To paraphrase, Satan is saying, well, you know, Job is devoted to you, God. He worships you, but it's all out of self-interest. It's quid pro quo. He does the things you want him to do, and you do good things for him, and vice versa. He doesn't really love you. The truth is, he simply loves you like a, a child loves the ice cream man. You turn off the faucet of blessing in, in Job's life, God, and watch how fast Job will turn off the faucet of devotion and love and worship. So this is the core issue underneath it all. At stake in this story is this whole idea, the biblical idea that, that God is a God of self-giving living love, that, that God wants a relationship with us, that it's supposed to be a mutual self-giving love. And, and Satan attacks that idea. Say it says it's a farce. That's not the way the world works. People don't love you and worship you because out of a pure motive, out of love. Satan says the reality is that everybody's looking out for number one, dog eat dog, survival of the fittest. That's just this, that's how the, this odd universe we live in, that's how it works. And therefore, the conclusion is, of course, that the suffering of individual creatures is just meaningless. That's, and that's really a current philosophy. For example, in Richard Dawkins, he's a, a famous atheist who writes and speaks a lot. He has a book called The Selfish Gene, G-E-N-E. And in the book, you read that there's nothing beyond this universe, that there's nothing behind the force of life beyond the drive to survive. And God says in the scriptures that this view voiced by Satan is cynical, and it's warped, it's misguided, it's wrong. That instead at the core of the universe, the meaning and purpose of life, the core of our lives is to be, a, there's this self-giving, self-sacrificial even suffering love of God for his people. And therefore, the Bible, the correlation is, is that in the face of, of unexplainable pain and injustice and suffering, that we can have a sure hope that makes sense because this self-sacrificing, self-sacrificing, self-giving, loving God is bigger than our suffering. That's what's at stake in the story. So we read this in Job 2. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and afflicted Job with painful sores from the soles of the feet to the crown of his head. And then Job took a piece of broken pottery and scraped himself with it as he sat among the ashes. This makes you kind of, ugh. Think about that. Just scraping your skin on these sores. And then notice there are some subtle differences in Job's response this time. This time he does not fall to the ground in worship. This time he does not say, May the name of the Lord be praised. This time he sits on a pile of ash, and we don't know, was that you know, a sign of, of grieving, or, or do people think he was you know, contagious, so it was a sign of an act of isolation? We don't know. And then his wife comes to him and says, Job, curse God and die, which wasn't a real encouraging you know, word from his wife. And I ought to say something about his wife here because so often she gets dumped on in this story when people teach on this passage. Remember that she's lost everything also. 
She's lost all ten of her children. Her financial security is in her husband's wealth and standing in the community. She's lost that all too. She will now have to care for a horribly diseased husband until he dies, and then she'll be alone and destitute. So she's just giving voice to the thoughts that surely must have occurred to Job. Then notice what Job says to her in Job 2.10. Shall we accept good from God and not trouble, not evil? Now he's asking this question, but as you read through the story of Job further on, you can see that he's struggling to understand God at this point. Is God the kind of being who sends trouble? Is God the kind of being who sends evil? Is God really good? Job is, is struggling. Then the verse goes on to say, And all this Job did not sin in what he said. There's a difference. The first time he said this, In all this Job did not sin, nor did he blame God. So there's a difference. Job did not sin in what he said, but in his heart he's struggling, asking why. Next on the lower stage, there are some new characters who enter the scene. Job's friends. They've heard about what's going on, and they decide to come and to speak with him. And they give us their names. There's Eliphaz the Temanite, Zophar the Namathite, and the answer to a great trivia question, who's the shortest man in the Bible? We often think it's Zacchaeus. No, it's Bildad the Shuhite. You you laugh. That's good. That's good. Bildad the Shuhite. My son will love that one. So So his three friends come together, and and they're, they're great friends. They love him. Their hearts are breaking for him. And so they plan to sit next to him and just kind of sit in silence for For seven days and seven nights, they sit in silence. They don't say a word to him. There's nothing they can say. What can you say in the face of such suffering and tragedy? And so they sit in silence for seven days, seven nights, which is is a Jewish tradition now. To this day, Jewish people will sit Shiva, which literally means sitting sevens. They will come and sit with one who mourns over a period of a week. And it strikes me that this practice may be the greatest example in the Bible of what Paul says when he writes to the Romans in Romans 12, mourn with those who mourn. I'm also struck by the things we try to do when people are mourning, things that Paul does not tell us to do. Notice Paul does not say give really good advice to people who mourn. He doesn't say fix people who mourn. He doesn't say... Tell people to snap out of it and get with the program. Paul says, mourn with those who mourn. An act of self-giving, sacrificial love is to mourn with those who mourn. And as we do so, God will work in ways beyond our understanding that go way deeper than words. So Job's friends, really, they do a good thing, a powerful thing for seven days and seven nights, but then they open their mouths. And they get in trouble for it. And like Job's wife, his friends have gotten a lot of heat over the years for their words to Job. But remember their gift of silence, of of empathetic, just sitting in silence, mourning with those who mourn. And that might be one of the reasons that Job's story ends the way that it does. That he's able to persevere and struggle through with God is because he had some friends who sat with him with no answers and no advice. 
And then Job speaks. And if Job can just repeat what he said in chapter 1, remember way back when it first happens, the first things happen. God gives, God takes away, but blessed be the name of the Lord. Then his test will be over and the book of Job would have been ended. It would have been a short book. But after this period of time, Job opens his mouth and he, he begins by cursing the day that he was born. I wish I'd never been born. I'd been better off having not been born. And for the next 28 chapters, Job pours out a staggering level of, of anger and confusion and, and questioning and, and even some bitterness towards God. And his words are so strong that his friends feel the need to interject and to begin to argue with him and defend God against Job's questions and Job's statements. And his friends, they, they, they express a fundamental idea over and over again. It's an idea that has been around forever. Back in Job's day, it had been a part of a genre of literature known as Mesopotamian wisdom literature. And the idea is this. Whatever you are experiencing is what you have called upon yourself by how you live your life. In other words, do good things get good. Do bad things get bad. Karma, in other words. And this idea spread through Israel and beyond. It's still around today, even in some Christian circles. And Job can't stand his friends saying this. He's like, I didn't do anything wrong. But they keep saying, you must have done something wrong over and over and over. And so for a big chunk of the middle of Job, there's this argument back and forth between Job and his friends. Repent, you did something wrong. No, I didn't do anything wrong. Back and forth, back and forth. And I think the reason that's so long in the middle of the book of Job is because the author wants us to understand how crushing this idea is to the human condition. You must have done something wrong because bad things have happened to you. Sometimes we get ourselves into pickles because of our choices, yes. But not everything bad that happens to us is a result of bad choices. And then finally, God, or Job challenges God. He says, if only I knew where to find God, if only I could go to his dwelling, I would state my case before him. I would fill my mouth with arguments. Ever thought that way? Felt that? And then in chapter 38, Job gets his wish. And the text says, Then the Lord spoke to Job out of the storm. Can you imagine what that moment would have been like? You know, if you've been in a tornado or a, or a powerful storm or hurricane or earthquake. And what you notice when you read through this text here is that when God shows up, what does he do? He doesn't get around to answering Job's questions about why. He doesn't explain to Job what's happened on the upper stage, you know, in chapters 1 and 2. He just asks Job a bunch of questions that Job can't answer. You know, and sometimes I wonder why God responds this way to Job, because it seems a little bit, you know, cruel. I mean, give him a bone, throw him a bone. But I believe God is pointing out that Job has a finite mind and a limited point of view, as all of us do. And there's more going on here, too. There's a scholar named uh, Alan David who, who points out that in the Old Testament, God's questions indicate something about the kind of person, the kind of being that God is, his nature and his character. And this really is the hinge of the whole story. Job begins to understand the character and the nature of God. And there's this primary move in Job. In Job 38, God says this, Who cuts a channel... For the torrents of rain, a path for the thunderstorm, 
to water a land where no one lives, an uninhabited desert, to satisfy a desolate wasteland, to make the wasteland sprout with grass. Now, this would have jumped out in Job's day. In Israel, life depended upon rainfall, a very dry and thirsty land. They would never waste water. So why would God water a land where nobody lives? What's the point? It doesn't benefit us as human beings. Because there's something about this God. This God is good, sometimes for no reason at all. He is a God of gratuitous goodness. He gives just because he loves to give, even when it doesn't appear to be strategic or advantageous. All these questions that God fires at Job keep revealing God is a creator who delights in his creation, who serves and who cares for the land and animals that are of no apparent use to him. For example, chapter 39, it talks about the ostrich. And to paraphrase the writer, God says, she flaps her wings joyfully like she thinks they're going to get her somewhere when they aren't. She has a limited IQ. She lays her eggs, but she can't even remember what she did with her babies. But when she runs, she throws back her head and she laughs at the horse and rider. God endows the ostrich with the beauty of speed simply because he loves to give. He delights in this goofy animal. Then God goes on to talk about the behemoth, the hippo, and, and the leviathan, the huge Nile crocodile, and the wild ox that will never plow, will never be of use to humankind, or the wild donkey that will never be tamed, never be ridden by humankind, and the mountain ghost that will give birth in secret places where they'll never be seen by human beings. The whole section is about God caring for and, and, and giving to and delighting in animals that aren't good for anything at all. He simply revels in the beauty of his less, least strategic animals and creatures because he's just gratuitously good, uncontrollably generous, irrationally loving. And he gives and he gives because that's his nature. That's his character. You know, Job never does find out about the upper stage. Never finds out about the conversation in heaven. Because Job's story is our story. It's on this earth that we live on the lower stage. But Job finds out something better. He finds out who God is. He gets a better understanding, a better glimpse of of who God is. That God is loving beyond his wildest imagination. And that's why he makes this great statement in Job 42. My ears had heard about you, but now my eyes have seen you. Job went from a man who, who knew about God. He knew a lot about God. He had the right beliefs. He, he knew about God. He was doing the right things. But he moves from that to a man who knows God personally who grows his understanding of who God is, who encounters the living God in, in a real and tangible and, and personal way. And so God comes down from the upper stage to the lower stage so Job can see who God really is. And it's, it's almost a foretaste, a harbinger of, of the day that God would come down to the lower stage in the person of Jesus Christ. The day God would take on Job's suffering and your suffering and my suffering and our sin on the cross, and then God would say to everybody on the lower stage, anybody, whatever you're going through, whatever you've done, whatever questions you have, whatever pain you're ha- you experience, come to me. Give to me your suffering. 
And God says, I'm a, I'm a big God and a loving God, and I will give you hope and I will give you comfort. And I will hold your hand. I will never let it go. And when it matters, and it really does matter what you're going through, because I know and I see and I will come down and I will redeem. God's self-giving, self-sacrificial love is at the core of reality and of life. And then finally, it moves to the epilogue in chapter 42, which is kind of thrown on at the end. There's some things like, okay, what's the point of that? And it talks about how God then turns to Job's friends and says, okay, guys, Job was, was right, you were wrong, and, and so Job prays for his friends, so they're forgiven. And it says that then Job is blessed, doubly in many areas. Uh, sheep, camels, oxen, donkeys, so on and so forth. And he, he gets seven more sons, and he gets three more daughters. And it gives the daughters names, interestingly. Jemima, makes me think of Aunt Jemima. Jemima, Kezia, and Karen Hapuk. And it says that there were no women found in the land who were as beautiful as those three daughters, and their father grants them an inheritance along with their brothers. Now, why would he add this? Before I jump to this, you know, I know you cannot replace kids once they're gone. And so in some ways it's hard to imagine that this blessing would have sufficed, would have been fully satisfying. But there is some stuff in this story that we miss, stuff that would jump out to ancient readers. First, he gives the name of his daughters, not his sons. This was unprecedented, unheard of in Hebrew genealogy. And the names are interesting Usually, if you're given names, you know, that for, uh, there, there's a purpose behind the names. Uh, usually, it might be there's a great character virtue that you want them to, you know, embrace, uh, or virtue that you want them to grow into, a theological truth about God. Or, but his daughters, they're all names tied into beauty. Jemima is the Hebrew word for dove, a beautiful bird, intricate and delicate and lovely. Second daughter is named Kezia, which is the word for cinnamon, a prized spice. The third daughter's name was it's kind of strange. It means horn of eye shadow. So he names his kid after makeup. You know, I don't I don't know. It'd be like naming your daughter Estee Lauder. I don't know. But not only does he give his daughters extravagant names, he gives them a share in his inheritance. You know, in a male dominated society, giving an inheritance to your sons was strategic because they would take care of you. When you were old, it was like investing in a 401k. But you'd never give your inheritance to daughters because that money would then go to the father-in-laws. You'd never see the money again. Sons were strategic, daughters not so much so. So why does the author include this odd information? Because he wants to see the before and the after part of the story, how Job has been changed through this experience, this encounter with God. Now Job delights in giving to those once considered the least strategic of creatures. Now Job is being gratuitously good, uncontrollably generous, and irrationally loving. He's just giving and giving because his character has changed. Does that sound like anybody you know? You know, the central question in the book of Job that runs throughout it is, can a human being hold on to God and to faith and a life and love when it doesn't seem to pay off. Now, in our world, that's kind of a rhetorical question sometimes. In much of the world, for Christians, that's a very real, a very real question. It has to be answered. But as we see in the story, in the end, Job 
holds on to God, he holds on to faith in the midst of suffering. And his example has been used throughout the centuries to inspire billions of people, billions of people of faith, that they can do that also. That they can hang on to faith. That they can keep going. That they don't need to give up. That they can be an encouragement to those around them who are suffering, going through pain, who, who agonize, who hurt, who question, who don't know, who don't understand. It's a reminder that we are all part of a, an eternal and cosmic story. And that our suffering matters more than we can imagine. That would be insensitive of me to not acknowledge that some of us sitting here today are suffering. Some of us very deeply. And you ask why. I don't know why. You ask how long is it going to last. I can't tell you how long it's going to last. But does our response matter? Yes. More than we can possibly imagine. Though we can't see what's going on on the upper stage. And we don't always understand what's going on on the lower stage. Our God is good and loving and faithful and gracious, self-giving, self-sacrificing, merciful, and gracious. That's who God is. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We're grateful for the example of Job. Lord, help us to to persevere in our faith, to trust you when we have questions, to stay in relationship with you. Like Job did, he had questions, he expressed frustration, but he he hung in there. He didn't give up on you. He didn't give up on his faith. So help us to do the same, Lord. And Lord, we ask that that you would continue to reveal yourself to us. And we trust and we say and we affirm that you are faithful and good and loving and giving and sacrificing. And we know, Lord, that whatever we go through in life, is, it does matter to you. You do care. And so we trust you with, with the questions we have about life on the lower stage. We trust you with those questions. We offer ourselves to you in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to ask uh, Judy Marshall to come out for just a moment. She's going to close us with a a few words about her own experience uh, with, with some loss and some questions and how that changed her in a relationship with the Lord. I'm thankful that I didn't have to go through the losses that Job did, but I did have losses in my life. Um, anytime trauma comes into your life, it usually involves loss. And um, so here's, here's your life. Here's your life. And you're, and you're uh, living it and everything's okay. And then trauma comes. And when trauma hits, it you, here you go down. And it takes two to five years for you to come back to the life that you knew it before the trauma came. And usually a trauma will cause loss in your life, maybe a loss of a loved one, maybe a loss of a marriage or a loss of a job, but usually that loss comes into play. Now, when I was, uh, uh, trauma hit me and my husband died and I was down. I never had lived alone. I never had done it on my own and it was tough. And I gradually inched back up and I thought, 
I think I'm going to make it. And about that time, a tornado ripped through our little town and destroyed 95% of the entire town in eight minutes. And I went down here. I'd been gaining ground, but then I went way down. So by the time I moved to Salina, it was like I lived in a fog. And a couple of weeks ago, we had that beautiful fog that came in and sat down. And, but in the fog, you can't see the horizon, and you can't see any kind of boundary. And it's like you're lost. You just, you just can't see. And I felt lost because I felt like I was foggy. I, I could not make decisions. I could not articulate things I knew to be true. I could not sit quietly. I was always restless. And even in my sleep, I knew I'd wake up and I knew I'd been hunting for some of those things I'd lost. So when uh, Women of the Word, I came one morning and Cherry said, how many of you have ever lost your car keys or lost anything? <laughs> yeah. And it said, uh, it causes frustration. Well, as soon as she said that word, it was like frustration was in neon lights. And I thought, that's what it is. I've been loving, living in total frustration. I'm frustrated at not being able to find my things. I'm frustrated that nothing's normal. Because, see, when I lived in Greensburg, I lived there 65 years, and everything was the same. And in eight minutes, it was gone, all of it. And that's a great loss, and that's trauma. And here I am at the bottom. So I finally went to the Lord. I cried, God, help me. Help me. I'm lost. And the first thing I heard was, come unto me, all you are weary and heavy laden. And I will set you free. So, okay, I got that much. I heard it. So now what do I do? I said, God, I don't know what to do now. And so I went to a favorite passage of mine, which is in First Chronicles. And you know how we sang, standing on the promises. And so got the promise out and reminded the Lord, this is where I'm standing. And it said, for all things come from you, Lord. Is that not what he was preaching today? All things come from you. And then my eyes dropped down because I still didn't know what to do. My eyes dropped down, and there was a verse there that I'd never seen. Have you ever come to one of those verses? You think, I don't think that was in there before. (laughs) And my eyes came down to this verse, and it said, As for me, in the rightness, uprightness of my heart, I willing offer all these things. And I felt like Lord was saying, So give me all those things you've lost. Give me all those things. So I did. I I got down on my knees and I said, Lord, I just give you everything I lost. Everything. And right away I had a picture of God holding everything I'd lost in his hands. And they felt safe to me. They weren't strung out all over the fields of the Kiowa County and they weren't ground to pulp. They were safe in God's hands. And when I stood up, I felt a wash of joy and a wash of peace 
that I had not had for six months. And suddenly, I was here. So I would encourage you, if you have trauma in your life and you have loss and you just feel weary and over weary and what is it, late, heavy laden, I encourage you to go to God. Listen to what he tells you to do. Act in obedience and he will set you free.